0: Download the new Bumble now.
2: They're back. Okay, Gary, name that film.
3: Obviously Poltergeist 2. I
2: knew you'd know. No,
3: I knew you'd know I knew.
2: Okay, so the evil one, the Beast, comes back to haunt a family?
3: Yeah. Kind of a reincarnation of the devil. This time, he's come back as a priest, Reverend Cain. Kind of ironic, the devil coming back in the guise of a man of the cloth.
2: Reincarnation. I mean, a lot of people think it could be real. In fact, there was a survey by the Pew Forum about a year or two ago. It found that one in four American Christians believe that people can be born again and again.
3: Does that mean that some of the feral cats in my neighborhood might be reincarnated souls from the time of the Roman Empire? Well, do they speak Latin? Meow, meows, miat. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Gary Niederhoff, sitting in while Molly Bentley takes the role of roving reporter today. Welcome to Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science.
2: We're talking about reincarnation. Lots of people have been convinced that people's souls get recycled just like soda bottles.
3: One recent high-profile case seems to have persuaded a big crowd. James Leininger of Lafayette, Louisiana, was only two years old when he began to wake up screaming about being in a fiery plane crash. He also drew some pretty scary pictures of World War II fighter planes being shot out of the sky.
2: Poor kid. But a lot of young boys have nightmares, Gary. Obsessions with machinery, too. So why do people think these are just past life memories?
3: Well, his parents said that they were baffled at first. Their son kept revealing odd details about air combat between Americans and Japanese over the Pacific, centering on the fate of one pilot in particular and his fighter plane, the Corsair.
2: Mm, right. Those are the planes with the folding wings that can be Packed tight on an aircraft carrier deck?
3: Yeah, and when the parents heard the story of James Huston, who had been shot down in the battle for Iwo Jima, they felt there were many parallels with their son's dreams. Not being able to explain it any other way, they became convinced their son James was remembering the pilot's final days from 1945.
2: How'd you hear about this?
3: The boy's parents published a book called Soul Survivor, the reincarnation of a World War II fighter pilot. They've appeared in television programs, and their story's been spread pretty far by reincarnation believers.
2: Well, I can't explain it based on what you've told me. Why don't you buy it?
3: Only a few of the descriptions mention that the child spent a day looking at World War II planes at the Kavanaugh Flight Museum near Dallas only months before the nightmares started.
2: And did they have a Corsair in their collection?
3: Well, Cynthia Myersberg, a Harvard University research psychologist, asked the same question. She's interviewed dozens of adults who believe they have memories of past lives and hasn't been convinced yet. She made a couple of phone calls, and that was all it took to uncover another significant fact that nobody else had reported, despite the attention paid to the case.
4: And
2: that was?
3: Let's hear it from Myersburg herself. Molly dropped in on her at Harvard and asked about the James Leiniger case.
5: I was intrigued by this story. Although I'm in the skeptic camp, I thought it was a very interesting story. And part of the evidence that was so persuasive apparently to the family was that the child specifically mentioned a particular kind of plane, a corsair. I thought that was interesting. And reading further, Child Before the nightmares Started had been to a particular museum that has a collection of planes, including working planes that they take to air shows. So I thought, oh, well, a Corsair, that's interesting. He must have seen a Corsair there. And just because I'm that kind of person, I called the museum just to ask if they had a Corsair in their collection. And they said, yes, they did. And then it occurred to me that you yeah, know, but that doesn't mean they had one then. Then being the time when the child had visited the museum. Yes. So I thought, well, maybe they've gotten one since then. It wouldn't necessarily speak to whether or not the, the kid had seen a Corsair. So I called back to the museum and I said, well, did you have a Corsair in your collection at that time? She said, well, actually, no, that was in between our first Corsair and our second Corsair. You see, our first Corsair crashed in a tragic accident at an air show. So, maybe three or four months before the child would have visited, the corsair in the collection actually was destroyed in a sad accident.
6: Do you have any idea of how the child might have heard the story? Yeah, I wasn't
5: there, I don't know, but I can imagine without a great deal of difficulty that it's possible, very possible, that a guide may have said something to someone within this child's hearing. Oh well, we used to have a corsair, but. And I can see how a sensitive child who's interested in aviation, who's paying attention, could take that information in and how it could appear as subject matter in a nightmare.
6: Few media accounts for this parent's belief in his reincarnation include the fact that he had been to a fighter museum, but I don't think any of them included the fact that an airplane had blown up a couple months before the child had visited this museum. This has been left out of the accounts.
5: Yes, yes it has. And it was it was a sad crash actually. It left the
6: pilot uh, paralyzed, I believe. It was a really tragic event for that community. What is the connection you see between an event like that and how they incorporate it into their into their psyche and, and a belief of past life?
5: I think that it's completely normal for people to look for explanations when weird things happen. And having your small child say, "I was in a plane crash. It was a Corsair." I could see how that would be really striking and You want an explanation. We want the world to make sense. We look for patterns. That's a normal part of the human experience.
6: Now there's one thing though to see patterns in the world. There's another to make the leap to believe that these patterns are evidence of a past life, of reincarnation. What does it mean to believe in reincarnation? So
5: reincarnation is the belief that one can live again. It's an important tenet of several world religions, including Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, and also it's a part of some Inuit belief systems and some other Native American
6: beliefs. It's, it's widespread. So the idea is that the soul comes to life again in another person, complete with all the memories of that past life as well? Not necessarily with
5: the memories. So for instance, part of what set Buddha apart, according to Buddhist belief, when mark the Enlightenment was that Buddha recovered all of his memories of all of his past lives at once, and this was considered an extraordinary thing. Some people think that they're reincarnated, but don't believe that they have any memories at all. In fact, that's probably the majority of people who believe in reincarnation in this country. I'm in the skeptic camp. Science doesn't have a persuasive mechanism for how the personality and memories contained in one brain could manifest in another.
6: Tell me about the people that you studied. Who were they, and and how did you set up this research project to study reincarnation?
5: what I did was I recruited people who believed that they'd recovered memories from one or more
6: past lives. What sort of stories did they tell you?
5: So it's funny, the stereotype really is that they were someone famous. Oh, so-and-so was Marie Antoinette, so-and-so was Napoleon. But the people who came into my study, that's not really true. That isn't what I found. Some people thought they may have been someone somewhat prestigious, but by and large, most people didn't think they'd been anyone famous at all. I've had people tell me a wide range of things ranging from Holocaust victim to being a peasant to being a polar bear to I had a life on another planet to I think I was a worker in a garment factory. I have one participant who recovered her memories during a near-death experience, during a drowning experience. I have had people tell me they had physical sensations, so I felt this pain. And I knew that I must have been shot with an arrow in that place. I was at a battleground where people died. And I was sure that that was the only explanation for the sorrow I felt and the pain I felt.
6: So in your study with these participants, because memories are fallible, uh, one of the things you wanted to test was just memories in general of these participants. What did you find? What sort of patterns emerged? We expected to see Something going on where people were perhaps more vulnerable to
5: have what we call a rich false memory, one that's detailed, one that feels very real. We did find an elevated false memory effect on a word task, so people were recognizing or recalling hearing words that they hadn't actually heard on a list. We also did creativity tasks, something called a divergent thinking task, although the groups were matched, both the past lifers and the non-past lifers, for education. And on an intelligence measure, the groups came out the same. We found that the people with a past life memory were more creative and they also, on a creative personality scale, describe themselves in ways that are more consistent with being a creative person. We also found that our participants were rich in something called absorption, which is a rich imaginative ability. And that's an important factor because the richer your imaginative ability is, it becomes very difficult to discern whether or not something you're remembering Is something that happened or something you imagined
6: happening? Was it a memory of a dream or was it a memory of a perception? There must be something else that links these people together because there are many creative people, imaginative people, who don't believe that the things that they remember are evidence of having lived a prior life. The way I put it all together in terms of who believes this
5: is that we have people who have a rich imaginative ability, who are open to new experiences, who are spiritual but not necessarily religious, for whom the mainstream answers about the existential questions we all face, for whatever reason, are not satisfying. And then they have some sort of unusual experience, vivid recurring dream, a strange sensation of having been somewhere before, a deja vu that they just cannot explain, or some other odd thing. And so they look for an answer. And then the magical ideation plays in because two people could have the same recurring dream about being, say, for instance, a scribe in ancient Egypt. And one person says, huh, I keep having this dream. Cool. And the other person says, I keep having this dream. Maybe I was a scribe
6: in ancient Egypt. So did you find that people, they wanted to hang on to this belief?
5: I had that question as well. Why? Why hold on to this belief? So what I ultimately came to think is that people are holding on to this belief for a reason, that this is valuable in some way, that it's serving them in a way. Thinking that life continues on beyond your personal body, this may enhance meaning in life. Somehow what you are continues and that the story of the universe as it unfolds you will share in, that that would enhance meaningfulness of life. And sure enough, My participants, strikingly, find life much more meaningful than the control participants, and they are much less distressed by the notion of dying. Well, Cynthia, thank you very much for talking with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the program. It's such an honor.
2: Cynthia Myersberg is a research psychologist at Harvard University.
3: The idea of reincarnation
2: just keeps coming back. It's definitely trending. Certain unskeptical media outlets just can't resist repeating certain mysterious cases, despite holes in the
3: stories. But here's something I wonder about. Don't reproduction and evolution work kind of like reincarnation? What? DNA inheritance and all that. Traits determined by your genes get passed on down the generations. So if you can be the spitting image of grandpa, is it such a big step to
2: figure that maybe you might be grandpa? I think it's a big step, Gary. But there's something to what you say. Biologists know that the blueprints, you know, the genetic code of individuals, are relentlessly copied, just like flyers for garage sales.
7: I am Tori Holler. I'm an astrobiologist at NASA Ames Research Center in the exobiology Branch.
2: Tori, they say that you are what you eat, but in fact, a lot of what we are is governed by those small double helix molecules known as DNA, right?:
7: Yes, that's true. That's some of what we are.
2: That determines our physical construction.
7: I think what it does is places the boundary conditions on your life. It establishes the this, this sense of possibility of what you could do or what you could become, and your experiences and your history are what fill those boundary conditions out.
2: Clearly, we do get a mixture of genetic information from both of our parents, so we're not necessarily very much like either, although people will say, you remind me of your father or something like that. But what about bacteria? I mean, to take this down to a simpler life form, Amoebas, for example, they don't indulge in sexual reproduction, which probably spares them a lot of headaches. They just split. So aren't all bacteria genetically identical?
7: Yeah, they don't quite have the same fun that we do in that sense. But because of the way that they do things, they split. And their goal is to to reproduce an exact replica of their own chromosome. So in an ideal world, the second bacterium is the same as the first. In fact, you'd be incapable of distinguishing one from the other. That process doesn't always work perfectly, and oftentimes there's an error in doing it. And so the second is not quite exactly like the first. That's exactly how evolution works. It's good that the second is not exactly like the first because it it allows it to be better sometimes.
2: Well, can you quantify that a little bit? If I look at an amoeba today and compare it with its progenitors, say, from 10 years ago or 1,000 years ago, what percent of it is the same genetically?
7: What percent of it is the same? A, a very high percent, but I'm not sure that that's the best indicator of things. You know, we, when we look at our own DNA, I think we share something like 99% of our genes with chimpanzees. That's a lot the same. But physically speaking, in many other ways, we're not terribly much the same. I think maybe the easiest way to quantify it is look at something that, that we know from practical experience like antibiotic resistance. We see new traits emerging on a timescale of months to years easily, and that's widely held experience among microbiologists. Bacteria evolve very, very quickly, and so they are swapping and trading their genes in short order.
2: And they also, in a sense, while they don't have sex, they do mingle genes, right? They do it without having a direct descendant. I mean, you could inherit traits from some other bacterium, even though you didn't split off from that particular line.
7: That's exactly right. The, the genetic change in microbes in particular is not just due to the process of mutation, but it's due to splicing in entire pieces of someone else's genes, stuff that's floating around out in the environment. Uh, some bacteria actually have mechanisms for going out and looking for that stuff because you never know what might be useful for you. So you try it on for size, and if it works, you keep it. If it doesn't, you jettison that stuff. But this happens all the time, and especially early on uh, in the history of life, this seems to have been a very widespread phenomenon.
2: How high up the uh, chain does this kind of, (laughs) you know, splicing in something else's genes go? I mean, how complex a critter would still be able to do this?
7: It's most common among the simplest things. So it happens all the time with viruses, quite a lot with bacteria, and I would guess not very much with stuff further up the chain.
2: I see. I don't see giraffes taking uh, big sections of the hippo genes and incorporating them into themselves. But these amoebas, they don't have nervous systems, at least I don't think they do, so they have no brains. They don't learn anything. They don't have memories. They don't have distinctive personalities. So in a sense, if you talk about reincarnation at that level, yes, the body plan may be the same, but you, know, you couldn't really say, well, my behavior is the reincarnated behavior of an earlier amoeba.
7: Yeah, I think if you consider that what makes you you is partly due to your genes and partly due to your experiences and and your history and the way in which you apply those genes for something like an amoeba or a bacteria, a lot more of what makes it it are its genes. And so I think that it comes closer to reincarnation in the sense that the next generation is much closer to the first. There's not nearly as much experience to be added in. In a sense, they do carry around a little bit of a memory of experience simply because of their evolutionary process. They remember at a molecular level what works for them, and that kind of information can be carried forward in the genes. But...
2: That's instinct rather than real memory, is it not? It's,
7: it's not even instinct. It's simply survival of the fittest at its most basic level. Uh, whatever works is, is what survives and moves forward.
2: When people talk about reincarnation, then, you know, I'm, I might argue, well, I'm a reincarnation of my parents. And my parents are this, if you will, genetic reincarnation of their parents, who are, of course, a reincarnation of their parents and so on. And so when you look at some la- walking down the sidewalk here, that's the repackaging of a lot of creatures that lived before doesn't that make us in a sense all reincarnations i mean we're reincarnations of trilobites
7: we certainly are at that level i mean we're we're carrying around a lot of what's been learned by organisms that went before us at the molecular level and i think the extent to which you could say this organism is a reincarnation of one of its forebears again depends on how much of that molecular baggage it's carrying around and how much of what makes it, it, is subsequent experience. For us, I think a lot comes down to subsequent experience.
2: Could it happen, Tori, that just by chance somebody would be born with exactly the same genome of someone who had lived a long time ago? Could you get a second Mozart or a second Einstein?
7: I think this would be a very, very, very small chance, and I'd be hard-pressed to put a number on that, but there are so many places in our genes that make us differ from one another, that it would be a terribly small chance to randomly happen upon the same combination of genes and chromosomes. I think that you could come up with someone who has similar talents, but I think it would be an exceedingly small possibility to wind up with an identical, genetically identical person.
2: Tori Holler, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Always a pleasure. Tori Holler is an astrobiologist at the NASA Ames Research Center.
2: Not many scientists think they'll reappear a few hundred years from now in somebody else's body, or maybe something else's body. But what about just going to sleep for a long time and coming back as yourself? Suspended animation. Just think of the compound interest. When we return, could you put yourself on hold? It's Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science.
3: Ow,
2: don't get that ice in my eyes. Gary here has a Rip Van Winkle complex. I think he wants to be the first person to go to Mars. Figures he needs to train for the big sleep en route. Uh, Keith, make sure to cover his legs.
8: I hope we have enough ice. How are you feeling, Gary?
2: Cold. Wow, Keith, it's Gary on the rocks. Where did you get the idea that this would work?
8: Well, I caught a rerun of Lost in Space, and they had these freezing tubes on the ship. I didn't know how these worked, but I figured freezing was what caused the state of suspended animation.
2: Yeah, well, what if it was the tubes? Oh, Gary, can you get that? No, I guess you can't. Hello, this is Seth.
1: Hi, Seth. It's Andre Bormanis here, former science consultant on Star Trek Voyager Enterprise, as well as a writer and producer on that show. And, oh, yeah, excuse me, I'm still a little groggy, still a little sore. I just emerged from my own hibernaculum.
2: A Is that some sort of cave, Andre?
1: No, no. That is a suspended animation device, sometimes called a freezing tube. I set it to revive myself on Thursday, and here we are, and it's Thursday. seems to have worked quite well.
2: Well, it may be Thursday where you are, Andre, but it's not Thursday here. No? Uh, No. It sounds like you woke up a couple of days early. What? Well, I don't want to disappoint you.
1: You know... The last time I buy anything from Hal's Discount Hibernacula.
2: (laughs) Well, it's the discount. Uh, Suspended Animation, Andre, this is a a Hollywood fixture, it seems to me, as common as Death Rays.
1: It's been around for a long time. The first example that I can remember was actually a movie from way back in the 1950s, Forbidden Planet, which featured uh, Leslie Nielsen, before he became a renowned comedian, as the captain of a starship headed to a distant solar system, and of course, given the amount of time it takes to travel interstellar distances, suspended animation, actually being able to put the body in a kind of a hibernation state for long periods of time, seems like a pretty good idea to the people who design at least science fictional spaceships.
2: Given that the universe is large, if you really want to go to the stars, well, you, you, you need to put the crew to sleep.
1: Exactly. If you don't have warp drive, as we did on Star Trek, you can get pretty bored traveling from Earth to Alpha Centauri or wherever your next destination might be. And so science fiction writers trying to make their future worlds seem ever more realistic found out that NASA and other organizations had been researching this idea of being able to induce human hibernation, and thereby making it possible not only for astronauts to sort of mentally survive long trips, like the nine months or so it would take to get a human crew to Mars, but also for the sake of reducing the amount of resources that the crew would need to use. When you're in a hibernation state, you don't need as much food, and you don't need as much water, and you don't consume quite as much air as you do when you're awake, which, of course, all of that stuff is at a premium when you're traveling in space.
2: Well, I have to say that although I saw Forbidden Planet, I'm old enough to remember Forbidden Planet's premiere, in fact. Mm, Wow. Well, yes, but I don't remember the suspended animation part in that film. But I do remember it from Stanley Kubrick's film, 2001.
1: Exactly, and that film featured a trip to the planet Jupiter, which even with the nuclear-powered spacecraft discovery that we see in the film, is a several-year voyage. And again, for the sake of conserving resources, most of the crew was put into suspended animation, and only the computer HAL and two other astronauts were awake for the bulk of the journey. And they had these pods that the astronauts would repose in called hibernaculum. Hibernacula, I guess, would be the plural. And their metabolic functions would be slowed down considerably. Respiration and other metabolic functions were suppressed, and so... The amount of consumables needed by those astronauts was very small. If they were all awake for the whole mission, they'd use up a lot of food, water, and air.
2: The long-distance mission. I mean, you know, even if you stayed awake... It's it's only a matter of a few years to go to Jupiter, but in the movie Alien, at least the first one, these guys were on some mining ship. These guys were also asleep in what looked like coffins aboard the ship, and presumably that would really be necessary if you were going light years into space.
1: Exactly right, and uh, even before 2001, you'll probably remember the 1960s TV series Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. The Robinson family was headed to Alpha Centauri, and they were put into a state of suspended animation in what they called freezing tubes. Kind of odd that they were actually standing up. I always thought that was kind of an odd way to travel. It
2: saves space.
1: It saves space, yeah, that's true. And we also did it on an episode of the original uh, Star Trek series. The first season, there was an episode called Space Seed, where we discovered what they called a sleeper ship from the late 20th century that had been traveling through interstellar space for 200 and some years, and aboard that ship, they had a bunch of hibernation pods, and that's where we discovered the redoubtable Ricardo Montalban as Khan, who has emerged from his sleep and proceeded to take over the Enterprise and try to do some nasty things to the crew.
2: Well, I think if you've been asleep for that many years, I can imagine it'd be kind of ornery if you were woken up.
1: Yeah, I would wake up a little cranky after that much time.
2: (laughs) Well, does Hollywood ever give us any clues as to how this works? I mean, how they actually reduce the metabolism of the crew?
1: Well, in fact, we've taken some real clues from actual science that's been conducted at least in the laboratory, never on a human being, but on on mice and possibly some other mammals. In fact, a show that I was a writer and producer on a couple of years ago called 11th Hour used as an element in one of our stories, a NASA scientist who is experimenting with hydrogen sulfide to bring mice into a state of suspended animation with the hope that eventually we'd be able to apply that technique to humans on deep space missions. So uh, it's something that we can do in a controlled setting in a laboratory for mammals who don't normally hibernate and it's remarkably simple as in inhaling a gas that has oh i think it's something like 80 parts per million of hydrogen sulfide which probably doesn't smell very good but it's not going to kill a mouse and in fact it does put them into a state that looks remarkably like the hibernation that bears and certain other mammals are capable of in the colder winter months
2: well let me ask you this then finally andre I can see the utility of suspended animation when you need to set a story in space. Otherwise, it's going to be a very long, tedious story. You've already pointed that out. But if you really could do this, wouldn't some people want to use it right here on Earth, you know, just suspend their lives for a few centuries so they could live in a future without disease or graffiti?
1: Well, and in fact, that is another potential application for that technology. The most extreme version of that is being used by people who are deceased and have had their bodies basically plunked into a <laughs> a doer full of liquid nitrogen. I'm not too optimistic about their odds of being reanimated at some future date, but perhaps a less severe form of technology could make it possible for somebody who, for example, is terminally ill to survive to a date at which uh, a cure for their illness can be found. So there are applications for the technology that the medical community is certainly interested in. Personally, I think it would be fun to live into the far future, and if I had a real hibernaculum and not just a fake one here,
2: it would be interesting to
1: go to sleep for like 10 years and then wake up for a year and then do another 10 years and keep going into the future. I wouldn't want to go to sleep for 300 years and then wake up because God knows what you'll find, but if you just sleep for 10 years, you wake up and you'll still be able to speak the language, probably. You'll be able to understand the changes in the culture and, and so forth, and... And by that sort of skipping stone method, you know, in 40 years, you could find yourself 400 years in the future and still understand the culture that you're engaged in.
2: Well, Andre Bormanis, I want to thank you for suspending whatever it was that you were doing and talking to us today.
1: It's my pleasure as always, Dad.
2: Andre Bormanis is a screenwriter and producer and was a science consultant for the TV series Star Trek.
8: Oh, so chilly.
2: Hey, can I put some sodas in here?
8: I wonder if Gary might go into hibernation.
2: You mean like a bear in
8: winter? Yeah, except Gary's not gorging on salmon.
2: Interesting observation, Keith. But of course, bears aren't the only animals to hibernate. I mean, you've got your lemurs, you've got your bats, anteaters, lizards, the European hedgehog, and an animal we encounter plenty around here in Mountain View, the ground squirrel. No, I'm pretty sure he's not one of those either. Is this really
8: going to work, Keith? Well, it worked on Futurama. Well, that inspires confidence. Too many cartoons, maybe? I also saw it work for those ground squirrels you mentioned in a nature documentary. They hibernate under deep snow banks for months at a time.
2: But I don't think it's just the snow that initiates the hibernation. I wonder if Molly can back me up on this, because she talked to hibernation expert Matt Andrews, a biologist at the University of Minnesota in Duluth.
6: Matt, I wonder if you could describe for me what goes on when an animal hibernates. And let's take the adorable ground squirrel. When it hibernates, it does it under four feet of snow. So what's going on in its body?
9: Well, Molly, you picked a great example because the ground squirrel is an animal that can be studied quite easily in the laboratory, and so I know a little bit about that. And in its body, the main thing that I think of during hibernation is a tremendous depression in three things, body temperature, heart rate, and oxygen consumption body temperature goes from 37 degrees C, and that's our 98.6 Fahrenheit, all the way down to about four or five degrees Celsius. And then heart rates go from like three or 400 beats per minute, which is really quite common in small rodents, to only about five or six beats per minute.
6: So 300 to 400 beats a minute when the animal isn't frightened, that's just its resting heart rate?
9: Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, that's really <laughs> common for small rodents. Something like a mouse may have a heart rate of almost five or 600 beats per minute.
6: And then it goes down in the ground squirrel to 3 to 4 beats a minute? Oh, yeah.
9: Um, that's, that would be the low end. I'd say anywhere from uh, 3 to 10 beats per minute, um, depending on the species. That's correct.
6: Incredible. And then the last one was oxygen?
9: Yeah, oxygen consumption, which is only about 2% of normal. And uh, something like that would be quite a toxic event for you and I, a lethal event, because that would cause a stroke and all sorts of other damage.
6: And how long does the ground squirrel hibernate?
9: Well, again, depending on the species, it can be anywhere from about seven months out of the year to maybe three or four months out of the year, depending on latitude and the temperature of its surroundings. But um, I would say in general anywhere from a third to a half the year.
6: I know in your lab that you you study these squirrels and you can actually pick up these little animals while they're hibernating and it doesn't disturb them?
9: Oh, not at all. When you have a body temperature that's just a few degrees above freezing, you are just totally incapable of detecting or sensing anything around you. The brain is barely functioning. So we can pick these animals up and hold them in the palm of our hand. Now, if you were to hold them there for like a half hour, the warmth of your hand would eventually trigger the arousal process and they would wake up. But to simply observe them and put them back in their cage, that's no problem at all because their body temperature is so low, they don't even know that they have been moved.
6: Incredible. Do animals continue to age while they're hibernating?
9: You know, the studies that have been done on that show that they age much, much slower. And, you know, there are many theories on aging, everything from telomere shortening, which are the telomeres are the ends of chromosomes, to the accumulation of reactive oxygen species that damage membranes and other things in our cells. And I think the reduced metabolism really generates fewer reactive oxygen molecules. And I think that has a lot to do with greatly slowing the aging process.
6: The big question is, do we know how hibernation works? I understand it's quite a mystery.
9: You know, I've been working on this problem for about 15 years, and I would have to say it still is a mystery. I I really believe that most of the answers lie at the molecular level, understanding what genes turn on, what genes turn off, what proteins are expressed because of this change in gene activity. And depending on the tissue, I think that these fundamental changes in metabolism, in neural activity and the ability to respond to stimuli are all controlled really at the genetic level. And we've identified a few genes that appear to be responsible for this, but I think we have a long ways to go.
6: Now, you said that you have isolated some genes that are involved with hibernation. Do you know what those genes code for or what they regulate in particular?
9: Yeah, absolutely. Some of the very first ones that we did identify were really responsible for the switch from a carbohydrate-based metabolism to a fat-based metabolism. And that's really important to mention because these animals really have their last meal in the fall, like in October, and then they won't eat again until the spring, late March, early April. That entire time, they are living exclusively on their body fat. But when you're not eating anything and you're just living off the fat that you've stored on your body, the metabolism has to change. So the first couple genes we identified are responsible for that switch over to burning your fat rather than relying on consumed carbohydrates.
6: It's a remarkable adaptation to your environment. Matt Andrews, thank you very much for talking with us.
9: Thank you.
2: Matt Andrews is a biologist at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. And
8: Gary is one chilled
2: out hombre. Yeah, indeed. But maybe cold storage isn't the way to go if you want to hit the pause button on a person's life. I mean, Andre Bermanus mentioned research on suspended animation using poison gas. I mean, how could that possibly work? We'll get the remarkable answers when we come back. Let's
8: go get a couple gas
2: masks. It's Skeptic Check. They're back on Big Picture Science. Doesn't Gary look a little blue to you?
0: A lot happens every day. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. And we're talking about suspended animation. It turns out that it's not just something for science fiction like Warp Drive. Scientists have had some success actually putting animals to sleep for long periods of time.
8: Well, Gary's sure asleep.
2: Wow. Hey, look, the ice is kind of congealed into one big block. Uh, give me that screwdriver, would you?
8: Here you go. Yeah, he looks like a giant popsicle with a chewy Gary center, but my soda's got frozen in. He's a one man ice age. He's got the jump on the rest of us, according to some of the paranoid news stories I've seen recently, about the sun shutting down. Aren't we all headed for some sort of
2: snowpocalypse? No, you mean because the sun is behaving strangely? Not too many sunspots, not much activity?
8: Exactly. Instead of global warming messing things up, Some people are saying a quiet sun could lead to a serious cold spell.
2: Yeah, well, that sounds pretty goofy to me. It's kind of reminiscent of the sort of thing you'd expect from...
1: Brains on vacation!
5: Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla's getting a bit pink.
1: Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer.
6: Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already.
1: For all of you
4: out there who are expecting a mini ice age any day now, I wouldn't stock up on the parkas just yet. (laughs) Okay, Phil, but the sun is behaving weirdly, isn't it? Well, we'll start with some science, and then we'll sort of roll into some speculation here. But basically, scientists have found that the sun's magnetic field appears to be weakening. They've looked at sunspots, they've looked at rivers of gas that flow under the sun's surface, and they've even looked at its corona, the gas surrounding the sun. And all of these indicators seem to point to the fact that the sun's magnetic cycle, this 11-year cycle it has of strengthening and weakening magnetic fields, it appears to be getting weaker, and that the next peak in the year 2022, something like that, is going to be very weak, delayed, or may not even show up at all. But is that unprecedented? The sun has an 11-year cycle, and this period is not exact. For example, right now we're ramping up towards the solar maximum, where we're going to see a lot of flares and sunspots. But the last minimum lasted much longer than usual. And this has happened in history. There was the Maunder minimum, which happened in the late 17th century, when the sun went without sunspots for decades. But what's interesting is that the Earth underwent a little ice age, and this was a time when mostly in Western Europe, but in a couple of other parts of the world, temperatures got really cold in the winter. The the Dutch fleet was frozen in its harbor. People were ice skating on the Thames River in England. I mean, it was really cold. Summers were pretty much the way they always are, but winters were very cold, and it's very, very tempting to link this to the minimum of the sun's activity that was seen at that time.
2: Well, this sounds a little counterintuitive, though. During the mini ice age, the maunder minimum refers to the solar activity. There were fewer sunspots, and you would think that fewer sunspots, since sunspots, after all, are cooler than the surface of the sun around them, that fewer sunspots would mean the sun was a little brighter
4: and that it would get warmer here, not cooler. Ah, well, you found what is really a subtle effect here that is very important, and that is that while sunspots are dark because they're cooler regions of the sun and therefore you might expect the earth to cool off when there are more sunspots in fact it's very complex they're surrounded by hotter regions and those actually more than compensate for the cooling off of the sunspots and so therefore and this is weird I know when there are more sunspots the sun is actually slightly warmer and I mean eh, just a little wee bit but it is enough to warm the earth a little bit more when there are more sunspots so when there are fewer sunspots the sun is actually cooler. Now the thing here you gotta realize is that there are a lot of subtle things. You can't just look at the sun and say, oh, more sunspots must be cooler. It turns out it's warmer, and it turns out as well that the coupling of the sun's temperature with the Earth's temperature is also very difficult to determine. We know that the Ice Age was pretty bad, but the question is, is it really connected with the sun? We know that after the Middle Ages, there were these pulses of cold air that happened on the earth long before the Maunder Minimum. We also know that there were lots of volcanoes that were erupting, and volcanoes tend to cool the earth. So clearly there's more going on here than just the sun. So the bottom line, Phil, is that a
2: slightly brighter sun or a slightly dimmer sun doesn't necessarily
4: cause our planet to ice up. It's not that simple. Nothing's ever that simple, and, and you're exactly right. The sun can warm up and cool off just a little bit and not cause gigantic ice ages. The fact that there was a little ice age that happened around the same time the sun was acting funny is suspicious. It's interesting, but we know there were other things going on, so we shouldn't just blame the sun here. So what are the experts in climate
2: saying about the sun? The fact that the sun seems to be less active than we had anticipated for uh, the upcoming couple of years, uh, that seems to be true? Uh, but what do climate scientists say? Do they say, yes, it's going to get cold?
4: <laughs> I wish it were that easy. Climate scientists understand that climate science is incredibly complex with tons of variables going on and very, very hard to predict. The sun may not be heading for a week or max. It might be. Let's just say for a second that it is. Even so, It's very, very, very difficult to say how this will affect the Earth. Nobody that I know of in a scientific field is saying this will cause an ice age. They're saying that this is a complex, interesting, subtle problem. We should keep our eyes open and our ears to the ground and see what's going to happen.
2: All right. So finally, Phil, I just ordered those furry mucklucks on the Internet. Should I cancel my order?
4: Well, I live in Boulder, Colorado, so having cold weather gear is a pretty good idea. But I'm not expecting a new Ice Age anytime soon.
2: Sounds like you've chilled. (laughs) Yes. Phil Plate, thank you very much for talking to me.
4: Thank you,
1: Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish.
2: Astronomer Phil Plate is the author of the Bad Astronomy blog for Discover Magazine.
8: You know, Gary here kind of reminds me of Otzi, the Iceman they found in the Alps, 5,000 years old. Except Otzi didn't come back when they thawed him out.
2: Huh, well, maybe we better get Gary warmed up. Anybody have something we can defrost him with?
8: Well, we could ask Barbara. Maybe she's got a hair dryer.
0: Of course I do. I always carry one. Here. Wow,
8: 1,500 watts, and with styling attachments. Let's fire up this puppy.
2: This is gonna take a while. But, you know, maybe we used the wrong approach. How do you mean? I mean, putting Gary on ice. Mark Roth, a biologist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, made a big splash when he announced that he could de-animate and reanimate animals using poison gas. Paradoxically, this approach to suspended animation may be a lot less difficult and dangerous than chilling, and it could really help a lot of people in trouble. Mark, suspended animation, You're not motivated here by the idea of making space travel easier.
10: Uh, Well, no, Seth. Actually, what I'm trying to do is to see if I can extend survival limits of people here on Earth who are suffering from the vicissitudes of life. So you're trying to help people with, say, trauma. Right. That's simpler.
2: Okay. So you want to pause the tape, as it were. Somebody gets into an accident, a, a soldier's injured on the battlefield or something. You want to put them on hold until you can get them somewhere. I think so.
10: I think it's about, um, if you will, slowing down time for those people who are having the traumatic event to slow their time down, allow those first responders and such to move at a normal rate, but in a way kind of take the emergency out of emergency medicine because you're slowing down the dying process for the person who's having the problem and giving the first responders more time to bring the care they need.
2: Now. We've discussed hibernation on this program, but this is not hibernation. How is suspended animation different?
10: Well, I would suggest that in, and if you have a light in your home that might have a dimmer switch on it, when you dim your light, I would say you're sort of hibernating. But if you turn the lights off, you're suspended. That sounds like death. Well, so it's interesting to consider deanimated states in the relationship to death. I think they're quite distinct. You come back from the one and you don't from the other.
2: <laughs> I think that's an important distinction, <laughs> Right, it, it sounds like. Right. It. Well, are there any natural examples of suspended animation? Has nature managed to do this for any of the uh, the life that creeps and crawls on this planet?
10: Yes, and one of the ones that most of your listeners might be uh, aware of are called sea monkeys. These are things you can purchase in little Mylar bags in a pet store and you dump them into an aquarium and in about a week or so you get a bunch of sea monkeys. But in the meantime, for the months and months, even years, they sit in those sags, they're just suspended.
2: What about bacteria? Because I know that they can pull bacteria out of, I don't know, salt domes and things like this.
10: Right, so we could go into spores, cysts, seeds of plants. Uh, there are definitely many examples of suspended animation that exists in a variety of different branches of life how long can they remain viable i mean well you mentioned that salt dome issue uh, where there are people suggesting that millions of years for individual cells brought back to a state of animation when they've been brought out of those salt domes but certainly thousands of years for certain seeds and for other things, I think we just don't have, it's difficult to, you know, for instance, sea monkeys and things. I don't think there's been a lot of work to try to carbon date the sea monkey eggs before you bring them out into water. So I don't <laughs> know much about that. <laughs> I, I got to say, all of these beat, you know, Sleeping
2: Beauty, although I, I, I suppose she wasn't really in suspended animation. Although, who knows? I don't, I don't know what that, well, are, are there any higher animals that have this ability that go into suspended animation for
10: whatever reason? there are and in fact part of this work has to do with near what we call in common parlance near death experiences this is where people are deanimated and the first responders suggest that they are dead in fact it's such a common practice in clinical medicine that there's a thing that happens in northern climates which is you're not dead until you're warm and dead so if you come into a hospital with no heart rate and your core temperature is below room temperature, they cannot sign your death certificate. They have to warm you up, and then if you spontaneously reanimate, of course, give you the care you need. But if you don't, then they can then sign your death certificate as someone who is actually dead.
2: That's extremely interesting. In other words, if you're brought in, you know, in Fairbanks, Alaska. That's it. (laughs) You've been found in a snowbank where you've resided for the last two days. They'll warm you up first before
10: they uh, notify uh, the next of kin. That's correct. And just to dwell on that for one other half a moment, it seems that a lot of your listeners might think that the idea of coming back from the dead by virtue of being cold and then rewarmed is a miracle. So there is a paper that was published, hundreds of people who were brought into Swiss trauma centers and hospitals over a 15-year period who were clinically dead for at least three hours. And then they tried to figure out what's the best way to treat them. And they found that if they rewarm their blood from the inside out, take the blood out of the body, rewarm it, and put it back in, that they could get over half the people who were dead for three hours to come back to life without neurological problems. And that is not a miracle. That is simply it is, it is a very frequent event if you treat the people correctly.
2: How does this work? How do you put somebody in suspended animation? Now you can lower the body temperature. Or you can reduce the supply of oxygen, both of which sound kind of lethal to me.
10: Right. So that certainly is a reasonable question. So what we thought about was what happens if we treat the state of animation to suspended animation, as I said, like a dimmer switch? Can we find any agent that, if you will, will dim the candle a bit? And we have done that using, of course, hydrogen sulfide, this heinous toxin. Hydrogen
2: sulfide, now that, that's a gas, I remember it from 11th grade chemistry, it smelled like rotten eggs.
10: Right. Well, how did you trip across hydrogen sulfide as the way to induce suspended animation? I was watching TV, actually, when a program on NOVA uh, was concerned with caves in Mexico, and the caves have, like many parts of our planet, lots of hydrogen sulfide in them. And when the person who knew what they were doing, this is a real cave specialist, was bringing the narrator into the cave to sort of describe this to them, they said, you have to put a respirator on because if you don't, you'll take one breath of the gas inside this cave and you'll collapse. But it'll be okay because if we bring you back out, you'll be reanimated. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. This is an agent that has an immediate capacity to alter the state of animation of people. If you look at the chemical accidents website that the CDC runs, there are many sewer workers, farmers, petrochemical workers and such that work around hydrogen sulfide and you find examples here in 2011 when they have been deanimated transiently through breathing excess H2S in the air and it does smell like rotten eggs and it will deanimate you if you breathe too much of it and you can be reanimated if you're brought to room air so did you rush to the lab and start administering hydrogen sulfide to uh, lab animals <laughs> <laughs> actually it was it was post 9/11 And I went to the chairman of my department and I said, you know, I would like to buy a tank of toxic gas that's compressed and bring it to my lab and then release it in a way that allows me to do experiments and he said, Get out. We talked over several months and eventually I convinced him that I wasn't going to do anything ridiculous. And, you know, although I have had homeland security come to my lab to make sure we're doing everything in a reasonable way and that we have appropriate safety precautions. It's been eventful a bit because of the time in human history when I've been trying to do this work.
2: But the results are? I mean, what, what happens? Oh, the
10: results are that we are capable of extending the survival limits of a variety of animals. These are mice and rats, pigs and dogs, that are subject to various models of, say, heart attack, uh, liver, or kidney ischemia, that kind of thing, the sorts of things that would happen to people. And we're able to see, I should say we, I and others who are physician scientists around the world, have published papers in peer-reviewed journals showing the benefit of H2S administration doing better than the standard of care. And so that's done. And that demonstrates the preclinical, as it's referred to, value of this agent to buy time for people when they're having their traumatic events.
2: Well, that's the obvious question then, Mark. I mean, if this works on creatures like dogs, it isn't so much of a step to trying this on humans and the benefits seems so enormous I assume that's what you're going to do
10: that's true yes several years ago in combination with the Fred Hutchinson cancer research center where I worked we got together and we founded a company and it's done really well just in brief it's developing products around the use of three very small very toxic molecules carbon monoxide hydrogen sulfide and nitric oxide to create better outcomes for people so finally mark
2: What's the future here? How far away is the time when somebody who gets into an auto accident or gets injured on the battlefield or something can get a shot of hydrogen sulfide and and make it? It sounds like this is not centuries away. This might be decades away, maybe less.
10: Yeah, I think it's quite reasonable that we will recognize the powerful effects of physiology that these small molecules have on us. And as we wrestle them to the ground, like many other toxins, which when appropriately administered became the most powerful medicines, these most toxic molecules are not toxins. They're powerful effectors of physiology. We use them correctly, and we will have the powerful benefits in front of us. We're going to be able to extend survival limits to buy time, to slow down time for the person who's suffering. That's going to happen. Mark Roth, thanks so
2: much for talking to me about being able to put somebody on hold for their benefit. Thank you, Seth. Mark Roth is a biologist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. Oh, look, it lives. Carrie, you're back.
3: What year is it? Was I out for more than a decade?
2: More like an hour.
3: That's all? It
8: seemed a lot longer. Yeah? Were you dreaming? Dreaming? Dreaming. Yeah, I dreamt that I was stuffed into a giant sliced open tauntaun. Let me guess, it smelled worse on the inside.
2: Well, that's it for our really cool show. Our thanks to our roving reporter, Molly Bentley. Barbara Vance and Jay Weiler provided animated help with producing the program.
3: Our show is supported by Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, the SETI Institute, and our listeners. Yes, this means you. If you have comments about the program, don't keep them on ice. You can leave them at Blog Picture Science on our website or our Facebook fan page.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every
4: day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to
2: TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch
6: Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.